The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word, we always make sure we're in fellowship. A few moments of silent prayer, so that if you need to use 1 John 1.9, you have that opportunity to confess your sins in the privacy of your priesthood to God the Father. And then having been uh, cleansed from sin, we're restored to fellowship, recover the filling of the Holy Spirit for advance in the spiritual life. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity we have to study your word today. We thank you for the freedom we have in this nation, that we can freely assemble and that we can teach unhindered the truths of your word. Father, we thank you that we have God the Holy Spirit who indwells us and fills us, and that he is the one who helps us to understand your word, stores it in our soul, and brings it to our mind for application. Father, we pray that we might be responsive to the teaching of your word today, that we might realize it is the highest form of worship, that we need to exchange our thoughts for your thoughts, our plans for your plans, our priorities for your priorities, and our ways for your ways. For, Father, the ultimate goal of our life is to glorify you. And we pray that we would be able to understand these things and be challenged by them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're studying in 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, but don't turn there. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15, or 14 and 15, the apostle is addressing the adolescent believer. And in his address to the adolescent believer, he focuses on the fact that they have achieved a level of victory over the evil one. That immediately brings in the whole context of satanic opposition to the believer's life. He says three things about them in verse 14. They're strong. That is another term used in spiritual warfare. The Word of God abides in you. That, too, is used in spiritual warfare, and that they have overcome the evil one. In contrast, by way of prohibition, they are told, Do not love the world, that is, the cosmic system, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And then he goes on in verse 16 and 17 to say a few more things about the cosmic system. Now, to understand this, and to really grasp 
what John is saying here means that we have to have a background in understanding the doctrines of Satanology, angelology, and what we call the angelic conflict, what is also called spiritual warfare. Also, as I have stated earlier, because of our reorganization into a prep school for our children, we've established a curriculum that is based on what is taught from this pulpit. So in the process of training teachers and getting information to them, there are times now when, as I go through a book study like this, I will stop, perhaps, and take an extended time, as I am now, probably for six or seven weeks, to deal with a particular doctrine in a little more depth in order to have that resource for our prep school teachers. This follows the principle that the Sunday school teachers and any other teacher in a local congregation uh, needs to get his training primarily from the pastor of that congregation. What we find so often, sadly today, is that that most pastors teach maybe once a week with a 20-minute homily and leave it up to Sunday school, pre-printed Sunday school material or some other organization to provide the doctrinal training for teachers, which is just a complete abdication of the responsibility and authority of the pastor. So that's why we're studying the angelic conflict the way we are. Now, in the past, we've defined it as the, the, the ongoing conflict between the forces of God and the forces of Satan. This began in eternity past. We don't know exactly when, but it began after the creation of the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1.1. We know from Job 38, 4-7, that at the time of the creation of the earth, that all of the sons of God shouted for joy. There's unity among the angels. They were joyful at the creation of the universe. So at some time after Genesis 1-1, there is a rebellion among the angels. It was initiated by the arrogance of one particular angel, more accurately a cherub called the anointed Cherub in Ezekiel chapter 28, 11 and following, which describes the fall of this individual who is called in Isaiah chapter 14, the uh, angel, he's called uh, Hallel ben Shahar, which was translated by the King James Version as Lucifer. And Lucifer has come to be the normally accepted name of this particular angel. He is the son of the dawn, the morning star, more accurately translated. Indicates his high position among the angels. And we saw that he led a third of the angels in rebellion against God. We studied that last week and that those angels are called demons. In our study last time, we saw that there are two classifications of demons. There are those who are working today and those who are not working today. Those who are operational today are demons and they are Uh, Satan's envoys, and they are involved in carrying out his various tasks and various roles on the earth. They are his intelligent system. Remember, he is not omnipresent. He is not ubiquitous. He is a creature. He has one location. So he is not omniscient either. But he has a tremendous intelligence network and system that he's developed over the years, and the angels are far more, I mean, the demons are far more intelligent than any any humans are, plus they have, at least at this stage, at least 6,000 years of experience with human beings, so they can pretty accurately predict what is going on and what we are doing. The unfortunate thing 
in studying spiritual warfare today is that that it has been distorted. This one doctrine is perhaps as more so than any other doctrine is a susceptible to distortion in our age. In the, in the 19th and 20th century, there was a um, reduction in significance of this doctrine because dominated by liberalism, by rationalism, uh, the whole idea that there was an existence of angels and Satan's was de- Satan was debunked by, by liberals, that there was, they claimed there was no personal devil. In reaction to that, in the last 25 or 30 years, there's been an, an, a, a non-biblical emphasis on angels and demons. And, of course, people always get titillated by the supernatural and by stories about demon possession. And we've been fed by television and movies uh, such as The Exorcist and, and The Omen and other movies of that type that operate on as much on distorted human traditions about demonism as, as anything in the Bible. And, and so people have all kinds of questions about these things. And then, then you have within Christianity itself, you have a large segment of Christians who think that, that the problems that everybody has has to do with demons. Because you're, if you're bitter, it's be, not because your sin nature trends towards bitterness and you're letting it run unchecked by doctrine and the Holy Spirit, but because you have a spirit of bitterness. And uh, they take phrases in the Scripture like that, where it might talk about so-and-so having a spirit of anger, a spirit of jealousy. They take that term spirit, and they misinterpret it to make it sound like it's a demon, because, of course, the word pneuma for spirit is applied to demons in terms of evil spirits. But the term pneuma also can mean a mental attitude, and that's what that's talking about when it says a spirit of jealousy or a spirit of bitterness or a spirit of anger. Somebody has a, an attitude of anger. They, they're characterized by anger. They're characterized by bitterness. They're characterized by this. And, and, and what happens in this popular distorted view of, of uh, spiritual warfare is that it's really a way of shifting Blame and responsibility for my sins onto some other creature. It's not my fault, it's this demon's fault. If somehow I can just be delivered from the influence of this demon, then I'm not going to be bitter anymore. And so they've misdiagnosed the problem, and then they come up with a false solution of casting out demons, etc., etc. So we have to get into this whole study because it is uh, one that is popular today and one that is so often, often distorted. What we have in the in eternity past is an angelic rebellion. We don't know how long it lasted. We don't know what all of the issues were. We don't know if there was any sort of redemption solution. Probably not. At least nothing similar to what we know of as Christ. The angels had their opportunity to either follow Satan or follow God. Once they made their choice, that seems to have settled it. At the conclusion of this testing period, this time period, God then convened a trial in heaven. For lack of a better term, there seems to have been an opportunity for them to make their case. And then they were condemned, and the sentence was pronounced. This sentence is referred to in Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. Jesus says, Then he, that is God, referring to the time of, uh, Jesus is referring to a future time of judgment for mankind. He says, Then he, God, will also say to those on his left, this is at the time of the sheep and goat judgment, at the end of the tribulation when the believers are separated from the unbelievers, the unbelievers are the goats on the left, then he will also say to those on his left, 
Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. And there's the phrase that we want to focus on. It is the perfect passive participle of etoimazo. Etoimazo, wrong pen. Etoimazo has to do with that which has been established, that which has been built, that which has been uh, put into position and operation. Etoimazo, uh, E-T-O-I-M-A-Z-O. The perfect tense indicates that this is something that happened in the past with continuing results. So it's emphasizing the present reality of a past action. That's the force of the perfect tense. It has been prepared, and it was prepared for the devil and his angels. So what we have is a place of eternal condemnation called the lake of fire. The lake of fire was created before Genesis 1-2 as the place of eternal condemnation for the devil and the demons. But they're not there yet. We have the creation after Genesis 1-2. We have the restoration of the planet in six days plus one day of divine rest. Then we have the initial dispensation of perfect environment that ends with the fall. And then we have the remainder of human history. And the center point of human history is the cross. Human history begins to conclude with the rapture of the church, seven-year period of the tribulation, which is the time of Satan's fury, and that's the picture in Revelation 12:7 of him being cast from heaven with the third of the stars when he is permanently ejected from being in heaven. The seven-year tribulation ends with the, with the second coming of Christ to the earth. At that time... There is a judgment on the angels. So it is not until then that the fallen angels are assigned to the lake of fire. A couple of passages indicate this. For example, Isaiah 24, 21 and 22. So it will happen in that day. Now that that day referred to in Isaiah 24, 21 is the day of the, of the Lord. It's the term that refers to the tribulation period and the judgments of the tribulation period that have been described in the first 20 verses of that chapter. It will happen on that day. This is the day that Jesus Christ returns at the second coming. That the Lord will punish the host of heaven on high. That is the demons. There is going to be accountability for the angels and it is this time that they are punished and the kings of the earth on earth. So there is a judgment day for the angels and mankind. Verse 22, And they will be gathered together like prisoners in the dungeon, and will be confined in prison, and after many days they will be punished. So there is, again, if we look at that passage, perhaps it indicates a confinement, and then final punishment. Then if we compare that with what happens in Revelation 20, we see that at the 
time of, of the Battle of Armageddon and following Jesus Christ's victory, John saw an angel coming down from heaven having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. There's no mention of the demons here. But I think that we can infer on the basis of Isaiah uh, 24:21 that there is confinement here. This is not just the fallen angels, but Satan and the fallen angels are confined at that point. He, as well as they, are bound in the abyss. It shut and sealed over him so that uh, he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were complete. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then we uh, skip down to verse 10 of Revelation 20 where the devil is released and he leads a brief rebellion against God and against the rule of Christ at the end of the millennium and at the, called the Gog and Magog Revolution. And then he is defeated. The devil, we're told then, was, who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and false prophet are also. Now, the way, there's some confusion here, and I haven't nailed this down yet, um, in the terminology. See, Revelation 20.10 indicates that the beast and false prophet go into the lake of fire are already there when Satan gets put there at the end of the millennium, that, they're, that the uh, Antichrist and false prophet get put into the lake of fire at the beginning of the millennium, and then Satan joins them at the end. Whereas the passage in Isaiah seems to indicate that there's some distinction. But the point is that the final judgment and the final punishment of Satan and the fallen angels does not occur until the end times. It does not occur until the end of the millennium when they are thrown into the lake of fire. And this raises an important question. And that is one that must be answered. Why was this judgment postponed? Why is it that the angels, if they are condemned, if they're found guilty, if the lake of fire is created in eternity past before man is ever created, why is it that the angels the fallen angels and Satan are not confined to the lake of fire at that point. Why is it that that execution was postponed for several millennia? And the conclusion, and it is never stated anywhere in Scripture as such, but it is a legitimate deduction from Scripture based on a number of, of uh, different inferences, that Satan challenged God. That at this trial, in some way, Satan challenged God. And there are four ways, or three ways, that Satan challenged God. And we need to understand these because it is on the basis of understanding this challenge and the issues that they reveal that we begin to understand why the spiritual life of the church age is so important and why the character qualities that are emphasized in the church age for the believer are so crucial because it all plays a part in this fantastic cosmic drama of which we are a part. It's not just our lives just do not happen. We are being watched on a day-to-day basis by the angels. It's as if we are in the midst of a huge stadium and we are the players on the field and the angels are the fans on the stand 
in the stands, and the angels on one side are the holy angels, the elect angels, and the angels on the other side are the demons and the fallen angels. And every time we apply doctrine, the angels on one side stand up and cheer, and every time we sin and fail, the demons on the other side stand up and cheer. And the point is that we are to be demonstrating the grace of God and demonstrating His character and that God is just and fair. So in order to get to that point, let's back up a little bit and understand some of the aspects of the challenge. First point, Satan challenged the judicial integrity of God. He challenged the judicial integrity of God. Now, let's stop a minute and review what I mean by integrity. God has isolated the attributes of God to ten primary attributes. This is the essence of God. Now, the reason we isolate these ten is because anything that is an attribute of God, as opposed to a characteristic of God, must be something that is not creaturely dependent. Not creaturely dependent. In other words, God is sovereign whether there's a creature in existence or not, or whether there is the anticipation of a creature or not. God is the ultimate authority. That's what sovereignty means. Whether the creatures in view or not is irrelevant. God is in control. That's what sovereignty means. God is omniscient. That has nothing to do with whether or not creatures exist either in reality or anticipated. So there are primary attributes like that. There are other characteristics of God. If you go through the scriptures, you'll discover a multitude of characteristics. God is patient. God is long-suffering. God is good. God is kind. God is compassionate. God is merciful. God is gracious. All of these are characteristics of God. Now, we have to distinguish between a characteristic of God and an attribute of God. And the reason we do is because, for example... We have an attribute of God in terms of God's love. Now, God is eternally loved. God exists as a trinity. We have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. For God to exercise love, the object of God's love must be compatible with His perfect righteousness and absolute justice. This is usually referred to as the holiness of God. The holiness of God, which refers to the fact that God is totally distinct. God is set apart from everything, and He is absolute righteousness. He is absolute truth is also part of that. All of this combines to His holiness. He is distinct from anything and everything else. The the basic core meaning of the Hebrew word kadash, Q-A-D-A-S-H, is that which is set apart. It doesn't mean to be morally pure. So many people get confused. See, our English word holiness has been so used that it's been diluted of its meaning. That happens often. We use Christian terminology so much that it it loses its, its power. It loses its punch. It loses its impact. The word kadash as a verb has a noun form. And it has a feminine noun form and it has a masculine noun form. And in the masculine and feminine noun forms, it applied to the temple prostitutes and the fertility religion of the uh, Baalim and the Asherot. Now, how in the world can they be called holy? 
They're temple prostitutes. Well, they're not morally pure, but they are set apart to the service of God. And that's why they are called what they're called. That's why Kadash applies to them, is because they're set apart to the service of God. That is to the service of their God to the idol. That's the essence of the meaning, is to be set apart. And when we're set apart to God, because God is righteous and just, then that has moral implications. But the moral implications are secondary, not primary. The point is that God is love. And love is, He loves, the Father loves the Son. The Father is perfect righteousness. The Holy Spirit is perfect righteousness, and the Son is perfect righteousness. So the Father can love the Son, and the Son can love the Father. They can have personal love one for the other. The Son can love the Holy Spirit because perfect righteousness can only love perfect righteousness. So God can be eternally loved. Now, let me contrast this. This is a Trinitarian view of God. But let's say we're talking about a, uh, a Muslim or Jehovah's Witness, or someone who is, does not have, or, or someone who's in the uh, Pentecostal Church of America, I believe, they're non-Trinitarian as well, that you have a, um, a non-Trinitarian God. How can this God be a God of love? Who's the object? Man's not created till somewhere way down here. This is, let's say, for billions or trillions or quadrillions of years in eternity past, you have this single solitary person, God, and He's supposed to be loved. Well, who does He love? There's no one, there's nothing for Him to love. There's no person for Him to love. Therefore, love in in Unitarian monotheism is creaturely, it's totally creaturely dependent. That means that if this is an attribute of that God, let's say Allah, if Allah is really a God of love, then He is dependent on creatures for His essence. When God becomes dependent on His creatures to be who He is, He can't be God. Because God, by definition, is independent of creatures. That's why, even though... When you talk with a Muslim, they'll talk about their God being a God of love. If you look at the history of Islam, you will, it demonstrates they don't understand love. They don't understand grace and they don't understand forgiveness. It's not there. It's impossible for, an, for the Muslim religion to be a religion of love because it can't be inherent to their concept of God. Now, in Trinitarianism... God is perfect righteousness. So you have love. God can be eternally a God of love. Because forever and ever and ever, there are two other persons within the Trinity for the one person to, to love. God the Father loves the Son and the Spirit. God the Spirit loves the Son and the Father. God the Son loves the Father and the Holy Spirit. So for eternity, He's not creaturely dependent. Then you come to an attribute like grace or mercy. Mercy is the application of grace. Grace means the unmerited favor of God or the or undeserved blessing. Now, these two words, by definition, unmerited or undeserving, indicate that the object of love is somewhat less 
than what is required by God to love. It's undeserved. See, personal love for the father to the son is deserved because the son has perfect righteousness. Love for the Holy Spirit from the Father is deserved because they're both perfect righteousness. But unmerited and undeserved love views the object of love as being undeserving. That means that the object of grace then must be a creature. God cannot show grace to the Son or to the Holy Spirit. So whether we're talking about the creature in terms of being perceived from eternity past as being in existence, God in His foreknowledge knows that there will be creatures that are undeserving and He will love them. Or whether it is talking about God's love in time to the creature in the present, is irrelevant because grace grace envisions a creaturely object either real or anticipated. That means that grace is always creaturely dependent. It depends on the existence, either now or in the future, of a creature that is undeserving. That's what I mean by creaturely dependent. And for that to be an attribute of God would mean that God is dependent upon His creatures. So we have to make a distinction between characteristics of God and attributes of God. And so we have ten basic attributes of God that we focus on. And these attributes of God are, first of all, that He is sovereign. Second, He is absolute righteousness. Third, He is just. Fourth, He is love. Fifth, He is eternal life. He has no beginning and no end. That's fifth. Sixth, he is omnipotent. He is omniscient. And he is omnipresent. This means that he is all-powerful. That means that he is able to do whatever he needs to do to accomplish his will. That doesn't mean that God can do anything. He can't make a square circle. See, that's a problem. Some people misdefine it and then they get into a trap. He is omniscient. He knows all the knowable. He knows all the things that might happen. He knows all the things that will happen. And he is omnipresent. He is personally, fully, totally present to every aspect of his creation at every given time. He is immutable. That means he cannot change. In his character, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Immutability applies to his character, not to his actions towards his creatures. Because God clearly has changed at times due to what His creatures do. God changes the way He relates to them. He changes the way He related to Israel because of Israel's disobedience in the Old Testament. He divorced Israel and He brought forth a new people, the church. And He will return to Israel in the future. But that shows that God changed the way He related to... He does not relate to Israel today the same way He related to Israel in the Old Testament. But in His character, He never changes. And then finally, God is absolute truth. He is veracity. Now, the issue at stake here has to do with the integrity of God. We'll focus on three, four attributes of integrity. He is perfect righteousness. He is absolute justice. He is uh, uh, 
immeasurable love, and he is absolute truth. V for veracity. This is the integrity of God. And we see these four attributes linked together in Psalm 89, verse 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of thy throne. Loving kindness and truth go before thee. So this is the idea that righteousness is the absolute standard of his character. This is the absolutes in the universe. Justice is the application of that standard, meaning God is totally fair at all times because he knows all the knowables. There's no fact that is not known to him. So when Lucifer sins, God knows it instantly. He knows our thoughts. He knows everything that we do. There was, there's no fact uncovered. We don't have to go to some other jury. We don't have to send out an investigator to collect all the facts. God knows all the knowable. So in omniscience, he is able to be absolutely just. He is loving. That's the application of his righteousness and his justice to the creature. And it's expressed to the undeserving creature in grace. And then God is absolute truth. He is a, there is not a standard outside of God for truth. He is truth. Now what happens is that Satan challenges this before the Supreme Court of Heaven. And he says, God, you're really not fair. You're not showing your standard is flawed. Your application of the standard is flawed. You're not fair. You haven't given me a chance to show what I can do. Here, I'm the greatest creature you ever created. I'm as close to you as any creature can possibly be. And I can do it just as well as you can do it. And you just made a bad judgment so I can prove that I can do it even better. He challenges the love of God. How can a loving God throw his creatures into a lake of fire? You say you love me, but how can you... Put me in a place to roast and toast for all of eternity. And then veracity, truth. How can you that be true? You haven't even given me a chance to prove what I can do. So at a core level, he is challenging the integrity of God. His, his righteousness, his justice, his love, and his truth. So he challenges the integrity of God. Second, he challenges, for lack of a better term, the fairness of God in terms of giving him a chance. Give me an opportunity to prove what I can do. I want to be like you. I can rule creatures as well as you can. So give me an opportunity to do that. And Third, he challenged the standards of the divine plan in terms of the character. See, in the divine plan and operation, even among the angels, it was based ultimately on submission to authority. See, we think that authority is something that God created in time, post-sin, either among the angels or among man, something God created in order to bring order out of chaos. But authority was in the Godhead before God ever created the first creature. The Son is subordinate to the Father. The Holy Spirit is subordinate to the Father and the Son. Yet they all partake of these ten attributes. They are all equally sovereign, equally righteous, equally just, equally loved, equally omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient, equally immutable, and equally voracious. They are equal in everything. God the Father does not have anything the Son does not have. The Son does not have something the Spirit does not have. They are equal in their personhood. But they are distinct in their role. That just shows the lie of the whole feminist agenda and many other 
problems in our country that that role does not indicate inherent that you're inherently less or less significant. The, that's why ultimately all of these aberrations can be boiled down to some kind of blasphemous assault on God or the cross. So authority was in it was present in the Godhead. And it was necessary for there to be order among the angels. Each angel had a place. Each angel had a role. Each angel had a function. And so Satan, or Lucifer, stepped out of that. He rejected the authority of God. That is the core issue, is rejection of authority. That's why it's so important for parents to drill authority orientation into your kids. You have to, some kids you just have to ride all the time, others not so much. But if they don't learn authority orientation in your home before they're six years old, then, you know, God has a great sense of humor. You don't teach them authority orientation by the time they're six, you're just going to have hell to pay when they hit 13. See, it's not like putting your hand on a hot stove. You make that mistake, you get immediate negative feedback. But when you're a parent, you make mistakes when they're young like being too lax or lean on them or saying, oh, I'm not going to spank little Susie because she's so sweet. And, um, well, you'll get yours. The establishment principles of God cannot be violated with impunity. Sooner or later, whatever we sow, that we will also reap. It's just that by the time it happens, you go, why did they turn out so badly? Well, of course, in some cases, they just have negative volition, and it's irrespective of how consistent you were as a disciplinarian. But other times, it's, well, you just weren't a disciplinarian. So, submission to authority is necessary. What goes along with this is humility. Grace orientation, understanding that everything we have, everything that we are, is not the result of who and what we are. Sometimes we sit around and we think, I'm such a wonderful person. I have so many great talents and abilities, but guess what? All those talents and abilities came from God. We are who we are because God made us that way. So we have ultimately nothing to be proud or arrogant about. And so Satan is proud and arrogant about his talents and abilities, yet God's the one who gave them to him. So he's challenging the standards of the divine plan, submission to authority, humility, grace orientation, and even being a servant. And the result of this is that there was a trial and God decided to give the angels a chance. He's going to make it, create an object lesson so that Satan can, and the angels, the fallen angels and the elect angels will understand the dynamics and the reality of his grace and of his, of his character, of his integrity. So he's going to create a creature a little lower than the angels whose ultimate destiny is to be raised above the angels and to judge the angels. Because the creature, the mankind, is going to learn things about God and is going to develop an understanding about the character and nature of God and is going to be able to reach a level of spiritual advancement far superior to anything the angels ever saw or knew. But it's only by following the plan of God. So what are the issues at stake? First, the integrity of God. Understanding His righteousness, His justice, His love, and His truth. Truth always relates to the expression of His thinking. His thinking is truth. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. And thy word is what? 
in 1 Corinthians 2.16, it is the mind of Christ. The thinking of Christ is truth. Truth is not some external standard God's decisions conform to. Truth is His character, and He always conforms to His own character. So the first issue at stake is God's integrity. The second issue at stake is is authority orientation based on Satan's contention that a a loving God could not cast his creatures into the lake of fire and based on his, um, his contention that God is not really being fair in the way he's treating Satan and the fallen angels. Now, at this stage, just a brief pause, I want to note two things that characterize Satan's thinking. So we've already said that he is antagonistic to God, so we have divine viewpoint thinking on one hand, and that relates to authority orientation, humility, grace orientation, and being a servant. These are just some, we'll add to this list, these are just some of the attributes. Being a servant relates to the application of role. If authority orientation and humility aren't there, then being a servant won't happen. Human viewpoint. Human viewpoint, what we see here, or in this case, Satan's viewpoint, SVP, what we see here is is autonomy. He is being independent of God. Autonomous means autos, from the Greek word meaning self. Namas, the Greek word meaning law, that I am a law unto myself. I determine what's right. That's what we've been studying in Judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's autonomy. So it's autonomy. It is independence from God. It is characterized by arrogance. I will. Satan's five I wills. I will do what I want to do because I know more than God knows. Arrogance and then antagonism. There is an opposition to God's plan. There is an antagonism to God's way and God's thinking. So when we look at human viewpoint, which is also called the thinking of demons in James 3, 13 through 15, what we're beginning to isolate here is the characteristics of what we will see as the cosmic system. The cosmic system is not overt. It is thought. It is ideas. It's the realm of ideas that produce actions. And if we're going to understand what Paul, I mean, what John is saying in 1 John 2.15, do not love the world, then we have to understand that worldliness starts by understanding the mentality of Satan in the fall and in his challenge of God's arrogance. I mean, of, of God's authority. Satan is arrogant, and he thinks that he can come up with an alternative plan. He's come up with many alternative plans in order to try to thwart the plan of God in history. So three factors then are going to be emphasized in the believer's life in order for him to be a positive testimony or positive witness in the angelic conflict. First is his mental attitude. Well, they all relate to mental attitude. And the first relates to his personal love for God. This is why when I graph out the uh, stages in the spiritual life, we don't put love for God until an advanced stage because Jesus said it in John 14, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Well, if we're going to love God, we have to keep commandments. That means we have to learn the commandments. We have to know the commandments. It takes time to learn and assimilate the uh, doctrine so that we can know how to think and how to live. So 
loving God, we may be able to love God at small ways, at an early stage, at an infancy stage of our spiritual life, but it is directly related to the amount of doctrine that we've assimilated. So we have personal love for God. Love for God is not an emotion, but it is an attitude that is going to correspond with authority orientation. That's what Jesus said. If you love me, you keep my commandments. If you love me, you're oriented to my authority. If you're not oriented to my authority, you're into arrogance and autonomy. You don't love me. I don't care how much you sing, oh, how I love Jesus, and how many times you go to Jesus' prep rallies at various uh, stadiums that are, that are having uh, crusades for Jesus. And it doesn't matter how, uh, how warm and fuzzy you feel when you go home from your uh, church service on Sunday morning because you... you uh, You've been uh, inspired by some message. If you're not obedient to me in terms of the warp and woof of all the commandments of Scripture, you don't love me. You don't have a clue what it means. That's why, to bring it home to us, that's why it hits home in our most intimate relationships. Husbands are to love their wives. How? As Christ loved the church. So, Marriage becomes an intimate and, and powerful witness in the angelic conflict. It was the failure of the first marriage that plunged the human race into, uh, in, in, into sin and total depravity. And it is only through the reversal of that in the believer who is advancing to spiritual maturity that the Christian marriage can become a unique witness in the angelic conflict. Notice, husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, and Christ's love for the church involves submission to the plan and purposes of God. It's not that the husband's in authority over the wife is not some autonomous authority. It's an authority that is under the authority of Jesus Christ in Bible doctrine. In the same way, wives are to respect their husbands and submit to their leadership. And it's the same idea of authority orientation. If there's no authority orientation in the home, then those two believers are going to be failures as witnesses in the angelic conflict. And they cannot love God if they are in violation of those primary role responsibilities between husband and wife. So we have the first factor is our personal love for God, which relates to authority orientation. And the second is our orientation to life itself. Our orientation to life itself, which is genuine humility. Now, humility is related to two important concepts. Of course, it's related to authority because in humility we have to subordinate ourselves to authorities that may not be, we may not think, are worthy of our submission. How many times in life do you work for some idiot? How many times in life do you have to deal with somebody in governmental position of authority that, that is incompetent, immoral, and an imbecile. I won't mention any names. You can read the morning paper. We cons- how many times do we have to submit to the authority, perhaps, of some arrogant police officer who pulls us over to give us a ticket? You know, I've had that happen. I've had wonderful police officers pull me over and give me a ticket. I've had times when they've just been as arrogant as they could be. We have to submit to that authority. Same thing in the home. We all have that. You know, kids have to grow up with incompetent parents. Scripture doesn't say, children, obey your parents if they're competent, spiritually mature, 
wise, and loving. It said obey your parents, unqualified, because if you don't, even if they're incompetent, even if they're carnal, even if they're foolish, if you don't learn to obey them there, you will never understand authority orientation, and therefore you will always be a failure in the spiritual life and always a failure in, the co- in uh, rejecting the cosmic system. Because when the child looks at the parents and says, I know better than you, and that always seems to come to play about the age of 13 or 14, I know more than you do, they're mirroring the sin of Satan. That's exactly what Satan said. He turned to God and said, I know more than you do. So we have, in orientation to life, we have to develop genuine humility. This involves subordination to authority and teachability. Learning, being willing to learn that we're wrong. That we've got great and wonderful ideas that our parents and teachers and loved ones and peers thought were great. When we were growing up, we heard somebody say something. We thought, man, that's brilliant. And when we're 25 or 30, and after we've been living according to that principle and uh, messing up our lives because it's nothing but pure human viewpoint, we have to realize that, that it's wrong. It's not biblical. And we have to have the humility to exchange the truth of God's Word for our time-cherished traditions, family traditions, maybe. Um, whatever it might be, we have to uh, be teachable. We have to realize the Word of God is absolute truth, and we have to completely eradicate almost everything we've ever learned because it's always reflective of of human viewpoint. So we have to exchange divine viewpoint for human viewpoint. In the process, as we advance and grow as believers, we become oriented to God's integrity. It's called holiness in Isaiah 6, 1 through 8, but we are to be holy, a practical holiness, as we live our lives more and more set apart to God, realizing that the sin nature was crucified with Christ, and we are to reckon ourselves dead to sin. That's the old King James for Romans in Romans 6.14, we're now to consider or think ourselves dead to sin. The sin nature is dead. It's inoper- it doesn't have the authority or power of us, over us. We have been crucified with Christ. Galatians 2.20 says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. It's not my will, it's Christ's will. Nevertheless, Christ lives in me in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith. That means dependence upon the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself as a substitute for me. We're in dependence upon Him. So we have to become oriented to God's integrity. We have to be oriented to divine righteousness as the standard of divine integrity, as stated in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 9. And we have to submit to divine authority, Luke 10, 39. I'm not going to take the time to go through those passages. You can look them up. The point is, our basic orientation to life involves teachability and orientation to authority. And then third, the third factor that, should be, that needs to be emphasized is our orientation to our role. Not just roles as men and women, but roles as creatures created in the image and likeness of God designed for a particular function. And Genesis 2.15, we see that Adam, man, was created originally to serve. And the Hebrew word is avad, A-B-A-D, avad. And he was created to serve. And so servant, being created to serve, is something that is primary in terms of our role. And yet, at the fall, man decides to rule autonomously. 
So part of human viewpoint is the idea that I can run my life apart from God. That mirrors Satan's thinking. I can do it as well as God can do it. We were created to serve. We weren't created to rule independent from God. There's nothing wrong with being a servant. In fact, David is called in 1 Kings chapter 3. He refers in his prayer to God, he refers to himself as your servant. He further defines himself as righteous, truth, and having an upright heart. This is critical because there in 1 Kings chapter 3 in that prayer, he is relating being a servant to righteousness, ascetic in the Hebrew, to righteousness and to truth, emmet. So being a servant, in order to be a servant, you have to have righteousness and truth. And then he comes to a fun little description. The description of the true servant is a servant who has yashar levav. Now, that's Y-A-S-H-A-R-L-E-B-A-B. That is uprightness of heart. Now, the term yashar is a term that is related and is a synonym for tzedek, meaning righteousness. But it has an application sense. But what's interesting is that this word yashar, the verb, becomes a noun by adding a final noon or in. And at that point, when it, it becomes the word jeshurun. And that becomes a title for, the, for spiritually mature Israel. So the spiritually mature of Israel was a Jeshurun believer. They have upright heart. They become mature so that they can be a positive witness in the angelic conflict. They recognize their role as being a servant. So to be a servant, you have to have righteousness, truth, and uprightness. That is going to relate to application of doctrine. Furthermore, this same principle is emphasized in Matthew 18, 1 and following. You can turn with me there. We'll look at a couple of passages in Matthew 18 and following to emphasize these character attributes. Why have you ever thought, why is it that again and again in these parables, when Jesus starts emphasizing certain character qualities, it always comes back to humility, and again and again he uses the analogy of a servant to a master. It's because as part of the spiritual life, there is a mentality that is demanded to be a servant because the path to rulership in the millennial kingdom is to learn to be a servant. See, Satan wants to rule by being a dominant tyrant. And in the New Testament Scripture, the issue of leadership is being a servant to those you lead, not a tyrant over those you lead. Matthew 18.1 At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom? See, they're operating on cosmic thinking. I want to be the best. I want to be the greatest. I want to be the one that sits in the position of honor and prestige. That's how man thinks on his own, apart from any spiritual growth. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? 
And Jesus called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So what's the character quality that makes you the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Humility. Teachability. Submission to authority. And then he goes on with some other analogies from that. So let's turn to Matthew 20, verse 27, for another illustration of this point. Matthew chapter 20. And there again he uses another parable. He's talking about the kingdom and rank in the kingdom, starting in verse 17. Jesus was about to go to Jerusalem. He took the twelve disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death. And will deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him, and on the third day will be raised up. Then, see, they still have this problem, who wants to be best in the kingdom? And now it comes from Mama, the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons. Now, this must have been a little humiliating. That's a difference. Being humble and humiliated are not the same thing. This must have been humiliating for James and John, the sons of thunder. Remember, you know, these are not wallflowers. Now, here's Mama coming now, and she wants to make sure her boy is getting a good place in heaven. Came with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him and saying, He said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine, notice she doesn't say, would you please, she just orders him around, command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? That is suffering and and, uh, death. They said to him, we're able. And he said to them, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the other two brothers. So now there's a rift between them. They're trying to get first place. I want first place. And so you see this little family squabble here among the disciples. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. In tyranny, this is the typical of the world, of how the world views authority and leadership. That the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great men exercised authority over them. It is not so among you, but whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant. Now, he's not saying there's no authority among you. That's clear from his use of apostleship and everything else that's found in the New Testament. He's not saying there's no authority in the church, not any authority in Christianity. He's saying the way it's practiced is not like like that. Whoever wishes to become great shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. There is an element of service and subordination that is what makes a believer great. And that is why if you want to understand real leadership and real authority from the Scriptures, it starts with being a servant and not starting with asserting one's own position and one's own ability and talent. And the same kind of thing happens again, and you can look at the emphasis on servanthood in Matthew 25 and 25. And the ultimate model for this, 
the ultimate model that is played against the arrogance and lack of humility of Satan is Jesus Christ. And this is emphasized in two verses, Matthew 20, 28. Jesus said, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, here he is, the second person of the Trinity, who has every right to be served and worshipped and fawned over, says he did not come to be served, but to serve and give himself a ransom for many. And in Mark 10.45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. And the, anything, and the important thing to recognize here is that the verb that's used here for served is the word diakoneo. Diakoneo, which is a synonym for two other important words. One is duleo, which is the word for a bond, the verb for slave, but can be, I mean, in the noun form, it's a, it's a bond slave. And it's also used as a synonym for latruo, which is a Greek word for service of worship. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, and brethren, by the mercy of God, you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable of God, which is your reasonable service of worship. It's latruo. That's the function of a diakoneo type service. So the emphasis then is not on a lack of volition. See, as a diakoneo, you voluntarily serve. Whereas bond slave is true and it has other applications, but here he's emphasizing the voluntary submission to authority, that Jesus voluntarily places himself under authority, whereas doulos emphasizes the slave's dependence on the master. Here he's indicating that he has voluntarily put himself in this position. So ultimately, Jesus Christ demonstrates all of the characteristics that are antagonistic to Satan in his whole ploy to gain authority and to become like God. And so the angelic conflict is not restricted to just answering the simple question of how did a loving God cast his angels into a lake of fire, but to extrapolate beyond that, that in in developing the character of Christ in the believer, when that happens, as the believer reaches spiritual maturity, the believer becomes a living testimony to the fallaciousness of Satan's challenge. And if even one believer trusts Christ as Savior, then Satan's whole charge is is destroyed. But there are thousands and millions of believers who are advancing to spiritual maturity who by every positive decision to doctrine demonstrate that Satan's charge is false. And that is why the believers who advance to spiritual maturity are going to be raised to a level to rule and reign with Christ in the millennial kingdom as a result of the rewards that they receive at the judgment seat of Christ, and they will be qualified to judge the angels because they have mastered and learned character qualifications in the heat of the battle that angels never developed and never were able to develop. Consequently, believers who are failures who never advance, who lose rewards at the judgment seat of Christ, and have shame at the judgment seat of Christ, aren't going to enter into that blessing. That's what's called, that's our inheritance. That's what's called entering in or inheriting the kingdom. Failure, believers who are failures are not going to inherit the kingdom. They'll be there, but they won't have the privilege and responsibility of ruling and reigning with Christ because they didn't learn it here and now. This is the training ground. Whether or not we pass or fail the course right now determines our position and our place 
for all of eternity. And that is how that, all of that, the spiritual life relates to the angelic conflict. Now, next time, we're going to look at how Satan executes his plan to destroy mankind in human history. We'll look at demon influence and demon possession as well, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning. We thank you that, that you are a God of grace, a God who has given us your undeserved and unmerited blessing because you made a plan based on grace to save undeserving sinners. You sent your son Jesus Christ to go to the cross where he died on the cross as a substitute for our sins so that by simply accepting that gift, believing that he died on the cross as our substitute, we can have eternal life. Our salvation is not based on who we are or what we have done. Our salvation is based on who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. And so by simply putting faith alone in Christ alone at this instant, we have eternal salvation. Our prayer is that if there is anyone here this morning who is uncertain of their eternal destiny and unsure of their salvation, that they would make it certain and sure right now. Right where you sit, all you need to do is believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. You don't need to make a deal with God, reform your life, join a church, do any other human activity. You simply trust Christ alone for your salvation. Father, we pray that you would help us to remember the things that we have studied, that we might be challenged by them as we we pursue spiritual maturity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.